Hello, it's Tuesday the 19th of January. My name's John Dennis. Today, as international aid begins to reach the victims of the Haitian earthquake, The Guardian's Ed Pilkington reports from the airport at Port-au-Prince, currently controlled by the US. Everyone we've met has said the same thing, which is we have a very clear and strong message that we're, we're desperate to get out to people, which is that we're not coming to yet again invade Haiti. We'll find out how the world is responding to the emergency. Brazil is taking it very personally that America is trying to effectively take over the whole thing because Brazil says, no, these are our troops and, and uh, they don't take orders from America. Also today, how Taliban militants attacked government ministries in Kabul. All hell kicked off in the surrounding area. There was an attack on adjacent buildings on the ministry of finance on the Ministry of Justice. Homeless chic, our fashion columnist Hadley Freeman on Vivian Westwood's menswear show in Milan. And in London, the funeral of a much-loved town crier. He was a character. I've said that he, he was Mr London. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. A chaotic but huge international aid effort is slowly beginning to reach Haiti. A week after the devastating earthquake, the UN chief Ban Ki-moon urged desperate Haitians to be patient. Some aid agencies accused the United States of annexing the airport at Port-au-Prince. The Guardian's Ed Pilkington went there to see how American forces were managing the situation. I mean, it's still not packed full of, of military aeroplanes, but there are some impressive sights. There are a couple of ginormous military cargo planes, C-17s, or the kind you'll see in, in the movies, and they're unloading a lot of military transport vehicles. I'm not quite clear what they're going to do with them, but they're, they're unloading them at the moment. And then, then there are about three or four other very, very large cargo planes, one from Canada, uh, from the Canadian government, and, and many Black Hawk helicopters, which are moving around quite um, aggressively, moving in and out of the airport, every 10 minutes or so. So it's a, a pretty active scene, a sort of bit, bit like MASH, a lot of military coming, coming and going uh, at the airport. We've got to talk to some of the Marines there who have been there since Wednesday and actually sleeping at the airport. They explain to us their job, which is to secure the food as it arrives at the airport, the food and water and medicines, and then secure the, the, those supplies as they're taken to four major distribution hubs. People won't actually get to the food at those places, rather they're central hubs from which the UN then takes the food and water out into the neighbourhoods uh, to distribute it among the poor and very desperate Haitian people. There has been some controversy, Ed, about the way America is controlling the airport, and it, but it's been keen to stress that it's not an invasion force. Yeah, I am... Um, We've now spoken to several American uh, officials. We've spoken to the Marines, actually they're paratroopers, the paratroopers themselves who are doing this security work. We spoke to a very senior uh, military spokesman who was giving a briefing at the airport this morning. And last night we went to the embassy just out on the outskirts of Port-au-Prince, the American embassy, where we had a briefing from uh, an embassy official. And everyone we've met has said the same thing, which is we have a very clear and strong message that we're we're desperate to get out to people, which is that we're not coming to yet again invade Haiti, as, we've, as America has done in the past. We've come as helpers and humanitarian aid workers. That's why we're here. And, you know, as you drive around town, you quite often pass a petrol station, and we haven't actually gone into one. 
what you see is you see the petrol pumps like any, you know, petrol station in the world. But around each pump is a, is a crowd of maybe 20 or 30 people. So within one petrol station, you might have 200 people jostling around. People are carrying cans with them, and they're trying to get to run a queue to fill up the cans. Uh, but it, what is clear is that fuel is becoming really one of the major problems here. The food and water is starting to arrive, but even to get that food and water out into the neighbours, you need the fuel to carry it. And equally on a personal level, people who are now going further and further afield to get hold of water and, and, uh, and food are, not, are running out of fuel for their cars and, and for their uh, motorbikes. So fuel is rising quite rapidly up, I think, up the, the food chain as a problem. And you're seeing that, that kind of manifest itself in these. It's not violent. We haven't seen any violence at all, but it's a, it's a sort of more tension-run violence at these petrol pumps. Ed Pilkington. And you can follow Ed live at twitter.com slash edpilkington. Now, John Vidal's our environment editor. He's been following the progress of the international relief effort. Well, it would seem that it is pretty chaotic. and uh, But in a way, that's absolutely natural. I mean, something as vast as this, maybe 200,000 people dying in one city, in a capital city, uh, never been known before. You would expect it to be totally chaotic. It is. And it's just beginning, I think, now to sort of settle down. Do you think that the US in particular has been uh, sensitive to accusations that, you know, here's a disaster happening on its doorstep. You know, we've got to get in there and we've got to get in there for the long haul. Yeah, I think I think it's a case of never a good deed goes unpunished. I mean, the US, um, <coughs> out of the, I, mean, I, I would say definitely out of the goodness of its heart, has 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 rushed in, and effectively taken over. It's it's, it's pouring in ten thousand troops, um, vast amounts of money, um, and it's taken over the airport. But you, in the in the haste to get good done, I fear that it is treading on people's toes very very heavily. Why is that? What's the evidence for that? Well, I think it's two things happening. First of all, the Haitian government, which was never strong at the best of times, um, has now effectively collapsed. And so that was there was a huge vacuum there, um, and there was no one really to take its place. Now, normally, you'd have the UN in a situation like that. And the UN was there. The UN was there in force. But it took one of the biggest hits of all the different groups and organizations there. It lost its head. It lost its deputy. It lost the chief of police. Well, it was, it was very, very damaged damaged by it, and it lost all its um, uh, logistics um, operations. Um, On top of that, it's a Brazilian force, and Brazil and Haiti have been traditionally very, very close. So Brazil is taking it very personally that America is trying to effectively take over the whole thing because Brazil says, no, these are our troops and and uh, they don't take orders from America. And America is saying, well, we're not going to take orders from anybody else anyway. So you have a potentially a, quite an explosive uh, problem there. And Médecins Sans Frontières uh, was also uh, expressing um, dissatisfaction, shall we say, about the inability of to get its um, its packages in there. They were speaking for an awful lot of other um, uh, aid groups, I think, here. Um, uh, what was happening was the Americans, in their haste to get people in, um, and get their own people in, to get a security force in there, uh, was effectively saying, no, you, the aid planes, are going to have to wait until we've got our security uh, forces in there. So of, uh, it's a very small airport, terribly few planes could get in anyway. Half the planes going in were not aid planes, they were planes taking American soldiers in. So, of course, uh, people got very upset about that.
And in the long run, um, is what's going to happen? And will America have to kind of pretty much assume control? Because, you know, to set up another government in Haiti, which is what's going to happen, is going to take a very long time. I think for the moment, it is a question. You have to, this is a sovereign state. And however damaged it may be, you have to rely on its sovereignty. You have to respect that. Um, you can't just have countries going in and saying taking over another country and setting up a protectorate or something like that. There has to be a debate about it. Um, and just because of the, there's a disaster. So I would think of what America, what Britain, what the, what the powers should be doing is helping Haiti get back on its feet. Um, at that point, it then can take a, um, a real, uh, have a real say in its, um, in its future. John Vidal. And there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash world slash Haiti also on The Guardian's website today. I'm Jessica Shepherd. Coming up on the education site today, we've got coverage of how David Cameron intends to raise teaching standards. He's said that only people who get a B grade in English and Maths GCSE and a 2-2 degree or above will be funded by the state to become teachers. And the Conservatives plan to convene a panel on what constitutes a top university if they come into power. They would pay science graduate student loans off if they become teachers. All that on educationguardian.co.uk. In Kabul, militants carried out a series of coordinated attacks on government ministries in one of the biggest attacks on the Afghan capital since the Taliban were ousted. John Boone explains what happened. The attacks really unfolded in the course of the morning and early afternoon kicking off with what appears to have been a man carrying a suicide bomb vest, trying to walk into the main gate of the country's central bank, which is really at the heart of this cluster of very important government buildings, also the five-star Serena Hotel, all of which is very close to the presidential palace, where Hamid Karzai was swearing in some of the new members of his cabinet. Now, there, were, there had already been an intelligence tip-off that a spectacular attack in central Kabul could, was on the cards, and consequently, the Afghan security forces were in a state of heightened readiness. And this man who walked towards the uh, central bank gate came under immediate suspicion, and when he failed to uh, obey the guards' warnings to stop, uh, they decided he was a suicide bomber, uh, and shot at him, whereupon he detonated his, his his vest, but not actually doing much damage to the central bank. At that point, really within minutes, all hell kicked off in the surrounding area. There was an attack on adjacent buildings on the Ministry of Finance, on the Ministry of Justice, um, and these attacks really rolled on. We think that some of the attackers went into a nearby shopping center. Having failed to get into the central bank, they went to this commercial complex where it was very simple to run amok within it and to simply go around shooting shoppers and civilians. With with such a massive attack on the Afghan capital, John, uh, it just adds to the impression that the Afghan government is unable to maintain any form of security or order? Well, the Afghan government were all trying to say that actually the way they handled it wasn't too bad. The amount of damage done 
was limited in terms of uh, these insurgents were unable to get into government buildings, and the suggestion is that they they moved on to softer shopping uh, this this shopping centre in, instead, having failed to to get through the having failed to penetrate the very uh, you know reasonably high level of security in these government ministries. Also, this area that we're talking about, it's a very important area. There are lots of ministries. It's very close to the presidential palace, but it is still reasonably open to commerce, traffic, and day-to-day life. If you wanted to entirely secure that area and make the sorts of attacks that we saw impossible, then you'd really have to entirely close it down, turn it into a green zone, ban traffic, and so forth, which may yet happen, but... For the time being, it's the classic problem which many cities face, where where you find balance having a, a an open and some normal environment versus security needs. So arguably, this is really a failure of intelligence rather than security. But then, having said even that, the um, the, the intelligence services were aware that a plot was was in the offing. John Boone in Kabul. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Peter Moore was town crier for the London Borough of Southwark, but until his death last month, he was a familiar figure at events across the capital. Yesterday at St George's Cathedral, his funeral took place, but it wasn't just an occasion for mourning. As Adam Gabbert reports, it was also a celebration. Cries, bells, up! My name is Alan Myatt. I'm the town crier to the world-famous Stables Market, Camden, London, also crier to the Cathedral City of Gloucester. And describe the scene to us here. I mean, we've got an array of people in all kinds of dress. Who have we got here? Well, we've got them, your mayors and the sheriffs of London. You've got members of the livery companies. You've got members of the ancient and honourable guild of town criers, the loyal company of town criers, the purity kings and queens, of, um, uh, of London. Um, you've also got heads of the various uh, charitable organisations and groups that Peter would uh, represent and, and promote. You've got a great cross-section here of the great British public. My name's Tony Alford and I'm town crier for Chelmsford in Essex. Tony, if I may say, I think you're one of the most resplendent town criers. You've got all the regalia on that one would normally associate with it. Tell us about your outfit. Oh, the outfit goes back to the 14th century. The hat, the shoes are, uh, were made in trickers in, in the German Street. They cost me a thousand pounds. The feathers are from uh, uh, are ostrich feathers. They're, they're eight pounds each. These are in your hat. You yeah, in my hat, yeah, and I've got 16 of them in my hat, yeah, uh, feathers. And the tricon hat, that cost 300 pounds. The uniform, the jacket here, that cost 2,000 pounds. The bell, 360 pounds. That's from the Whitechapel Bell Company. Very, very good. So we're looking at an outfit of around £3,500, £4,000, yeah. So where does one buy town crier garb from? Well, you had to go, I had these made in St. Beres and Edmunds, uh, St. Albans, but appointment to the Queen, because uh, there's not many people who make them. And uh, they've got to be right as well, you know what I mean? But like I said, they're very, very expensive. But uh, if you're going to get a good job, you've got to look right. And this is why I get plenty of work, you know? Hello, my name is Maxine Howard, and I'm the ex-partner of Peter Moore. Um, I'm Jamie Howard Moore, and I'm Peter's son. 
Jamie, you uh, gave a moving speech in there about your father. Tell me uh, a little bit about what he was like. Um, first of all, uh, thank you. Uh, Dad, he was, he was a character. I've said that he, he was Mr. London. Um, as you can see um, here today, the funeral it was very bright. It's more of a celebration of life and it's what he would have wanted. He was a massive character. He knew how to work the media. He knew how to work the camera. Um, he was just a big, big character. Yeah, his motto was have bell, will travel, and he has been all around the world with his bell. Um, he's been on the David Letterman show, um, he's opened pageants in India, he's done things in Southwark, from as close to Southwark to as far afield as India and everywhere in between. So he had his bell and he definitely did travel with it. And just finally, any aspirations yourself for the role? Um, not for the role of town crier, uh, but, but the, the performance side is definitely there with me. Uh, act, I do comedy and whatnot, so yeah. Adam Gabbett reporting. Fashion designer Vivian Westwood has based her menswear show at Milan Fashion Week on homelessness. Models were done up to look like they'd been sleeping rough. I asked our fashion columnist, Hadley Freeman, what Vivian Westwood was hoping to achieve. Well, it's kind of hard to say what she's trying to achieve because it's not only tasteless, it's actually incredibly unoriginal because John Galliano did this years ago. It's how he basically made his name was when he had... Um, girls on the on the on the catwalks are wearing clothes that looked like newspapers and it was his homeless collection so uh vivian westwood has committed the double crime of being both kind of disgusting and unimaginative uh, she also got someone to wear a jumper as a pair of trousers but put their put their <laughs> legs in the sleeves of a jumper i mean what's going on i mean i think in the in the distance you can probably hear the the distinct sound of a barrel being scraped from the bottom at this point it's like can't think of anything more to do with the jumper so let's put it on the legs i I don't know, maybe she'll probably say it's some ironic comment on um, the recession, but I kind of just see it as this thrilling confirmation that Zoolander is no exaggeration of the fashion industry. It actually is as ridiculous. I mean, in Zoolander, there's the whole plot about derelict, you know, the derelict collection. And here we have it for real in Milan, to which I say, well done, Vivian. I mean, does the, anyone in the fashion industry just sort of just think, oh, my God, you know, it's just giving us such a bad name? And, <laughs> uh, or, or is it just sort of, you know, so beyond parody that, you know, everyone just... Because, I mean, she, she, she was received with rapturous applause. <laughs> well, I mean, what this show kind of shows is uh, what the shows are really all about, which is just getting attention. Because, to be honest, as everyone knows, designer clothes sell in relatively small amounts and, you know, increasingly small amounts now, now that fewer people have £5,000 to spend on a suit or whatever. It's really about getting the name out there, as we're doing right now. You know, we're talking about her, and this will sell perfume, this will sell jeans. That's what that's what the thinking is. And I think you've inc we've increasingly seen now um, fashion industries making desperate attempts to get attention, whether it's having models blacking up in French Vogue, um, models smoking in various fashion shoots. Uh, there was the whole sort of big scandal last season in London when a designer put uh, plus-size models on the catwalk and his stylist refused to dress them and all that. I think we're going to see increasing numbers of these sort of petulant displays of grabs for attention um, and it, as the fashion industry tries to get you know, attention paid to it, to be honest. Hadley Freeman. The producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily were Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening.